It's been a few years ago now, but at the annual meeting of the Academy of Homiletics, I heard Roberta Bondi give a paper, a reading. And normally when scholars read to scholars, it's pretty dry and technical. And she's a respected scholar. She's up to that. But on this day, it was different. She read from her book, Memories of God. And while she taught for years at Emory University, a church historian, Memories of God is different than the other stuff that she's written. It's, it's really part essay and part memoir. And in that hotel ballroom, all of us sat forward, chin in hand, as she read a piece about the crucifixion. And it blew us away. She describes how she grew up as a little girl battling depression and a poor self-image, which was reinforced by her emotionally abusive father. He, she didn't feel worthy of love, and he told her she wasn't. And it wasn't much better when she got married later, and her husband was also emotionally abusive and neglected her. She struggled with this her entire life, and, and her religious education wasn't much better. The little church in Pond Fort, Kentucky, once a year would have a revival preacher come, and he would let him have it, hellfire and damnation. And three things she said were very clear. You are a sinner. God wants to kill you. But if you trust in Jesus, maybe you'll be okay. Childhood memories are hard to overcome. She, she knew better, but they're hard to overcome. And so what happened was, years later, she had divorced and remarried a kind gentleman, and she had a dream, really more of a nightmare. She and her second husband, Richard, were at her Aunt Blackie's house, the farmhouse out in rural Kentucky. And in the dream, the sunlight was shining in, but everything yet was dark. There was the screen porch and the, you know, the, the doors and the, everything was normal except it wasn't because it was the world of dreams. Her husband, Richard, was in the green tiled bathroom a man, a figure of a man, Satan, God, she didn't know, was holding Richard over the tub with a knife to his throat, and she knew that he had come to kill her, not Richard. But Richard was saying, don't take her, take me instead. And she wanted to say something, but it was a dream, so she couldn't talk. And the figure slit his throat, and red blood poured over all of the green tiles. And she woke up sweating, her heart pounding. Richard held her. And in that moment, she said she realized two things. That that was the view she had always had, even if she knew it was wrong. That was the view she'd always had, and now she realized how wrong it was. It is true that it's hard to overcome sometimes those childhood messages. I read recently and was reminded of that in an article in the Christian Century about how children, whatever their early experiences of church are, that becomes Christianity for them. That becomes it. It's the architecture, the artwork, the music, the blood songs, the scriptures that are read, the tone of voice of the preacher, all of those things 
become Christianity. I remember one of my professors in seminary said, if the gospel's the greatest love story ever told, why do so many preach it with a clenched fist? And those messages, they stay. I think I've told you about my good friend, minister friend, Jim Gordon, Presbyterian minister, and how he's not one of those preachers. He doesn't clench his fist. He's quite the opposite, a storyteller, very kind and gentle. But at one point he said to me, I, I just don't know if we should do the children's sermon anymore. And I've been there, I've, I've watched, and he said, you know, they come down, but you're not sure if anything's getting through, and the little girl's pulling her skirt up, and it just doesn't, you know? And he said, I just don't know. And I said, uh, well, I think you should. And he said, why? And I said, one reason. Even if a single word never gets through, you are a robed minister who smiles at them and is kind. And dressed as a representative of God, that's gospel. What is it from your childhood that you bring to the crucifixion? What is your earliest memory of the cross? And what is your earliest memory of Jesus surrounded by two thieves, one of whom is promised paradise? Theologian David Cunningham has been thinking about it for a long time, even before he went to seminary. He did his undergraduate at Northwestern University outside of Chicago. It was originally a Methodist school, but it's post-Christian now and has been for a long time. So even back then, he was one of the few that went to chapel. But he remembers sitting in that chapel and how on both walls there were banners and they weren't beautiful works of art. They just had words on them, some scripture and some from classical authors. And there was this one banner. It said, do not despair. One of the thieves was saved. Do not presume. One of the thieves was damned. But then he realized something that because they were banners, there, there was no punctuation. And even at that early stage of his life, he realized there was an alternative way to read the banner. The first one, sure, don't despair. One of the thieves was saved. But the second one, without the comma, would say, do not presume the other thief was damned. I mean... Luke says that Jesus turns to the one and says, you'll be able to be in paradise, but he says nothing about turning to the other and consigning him to the fires of hell. And, and who's to say that the prayer that Jesus offers, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, why would it go unanswered? Maybe Jesus knows what all good Jews have always known, that God forgives. God just does that. It's who God is. You don't have to believe a certain thing. You don't have to say a certain thing. You don't have to do anything except, well, maybe the one thing we're really good at, get lost. You know, just lose your way. Let, let, let me explain. A few chapters earlier, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells three short stories, parables, and all of them images of God. You, you know them. There's this one about a shepherd. He's got sheep. It's the end of the day. He's putting them up. He's counting. 97, 98, 99. 
uh-oh, there's one missing. What do shepherds do? They scour the countryside. They look behind the brush, the rocks, everywhere until he finds it and brings it home because that is what God does. Or there's that one about the woman. She's got the little coin purse, you know, ten coins. Well, there were ten. There are only nine. Where did it go? Did it slip behind the couch cushion? How do coins always go into the cushions? Do couches have places where coins go to hide? Well, she's not going to leave it like that. She tears the thing apart if she has to, and she finds it because that's what God does. But you need the third story because sheep and coins don't have much agency, and they certainly can't repent. So Jesus tells one about the prodigal boy. He's got the inheritance in his pocket. It's burning a hole in his pocket. He leaves for the far country. He squanders it, runs out of friends, runs out of food. He's desperate, so he's heading back home, and he's got a speech prepared. Because you've got to have a speech for God. And he goes back, and he says, and he tries to give the speech, but God will not hear it. The Father will not hear the speech. It gets interrupted. Jews have always known God forgives. Christians, on the other hand, have struggled with this. We have lots of theories and theologies specifically focused on the cross and what does it mean. One of the major branches of Christianity, the Orthodox Church, has never, ever considered the cross as Jesus taking our place like Bondi's dream. But in the West, among Protestants and Catholics, various traditions, but the one that Jesus took our place came so late in Christian history, the 11th century. The good news of Good Friday is not divine violence, but that God's love forgives us and saves us, makes us whole in this life and in the next. I love what one scholar says about the two thieves. If all we had were just the two thieves, you have this binary, good and bad, or I guess both bad, but at least one repentant and one not. It's a binary. But Jesus changes the math. He changes it. It's not a binary. Forgive them, God. They don't know what they're doing. You know, we all know, that the biggest time of the Christian year is this weekend. Attendance will swell everywhere. For our Jewish brothers and sisters, Passover, it's big, but it's not the biggest. The biggest is in September with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Attendance swells, you can't find a parking place. That sounds familiar, right? And people flock to the synagogue. Now, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, originally in the Old Testament times, was the one day a year when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where God lived, and there, with incense burning, would offer a sacrifice, an animal. But so ominous was this moment that the people would tie a rope onto his, one of his feet, and he had bells in his cloth, and if 
while he was in there, you couldn't hear the bell anymore. Well, they knew God had struck him dead, but at least they could pull him out and their sins were forgiven. Not because the animal guaranteed it, but it celebrated what was already true. That's what Yom Kippur used to be. But the temple was destroyed in the first century, and so Jews had to figure out how does this how does this holy day look now? And many, many centuries later, and they've been doing it now for a thousand years, they came up with something. And the Jews flock for this. They make a solemn vow that from this moment now until this moment next year, all of our vows and promises to God are null and void these promises are not promises. These vows are not vows. Or as one Jewish writer puts it, God, forgive us. We don't know what we're doing and we likely never will. And the people, jaded, secular, non-practicing, everybody comes out to say, and God's okay with this. And God's okay with this. Jesus on the cross says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's a prayer God answers. And then he breathes his last. But just before he does, he says to God, into your hands I commend my spirit. And when he does that, or any of us for that matter, well, what happens next that's what Sunday is for.